0: in which he, uh, he used that old metaphor that um, as, uh, as medicine, well, let's see, someone who's sick uh, doesn't need a theory of medicine, they just need the medicine. Right? And he says, in the same way we do not need a theory of salvation, we just need the facts of redemption. And so he, he poses this very sharp distinction between theology and and the facts of theology between reasoning about, thinking about, talking about, and the fact of God's work and word and deeds in the world. This is, a, this is a, and, and I suggest that there's something about that that surely could be seen as true. But at the same time, I find it highly problematic. And one of the reasons I find it so problematic is that if you go very far with that metaphor, um, we can begin to assume that when we, for example, read the Bible, that we're not bringing anything to that task. Or we can assume that when we talk about God, that we're not bringing any presuppositions or our cultural experience or our formation as children or our formation in any any given church context. And instead, one of the things that we've been trying to suggest is that we're always in process. We all have filters. We all have lenses through which we look at our reality. We all have our particularities by which and through which we look at the world and through which we make certain claims. you know. As, as much as I may try to understand uh, the experience of women, I'm still a man and I, I can't fully, empathetic, fully empathetically understand the experience of women because it's not my experience. Um, even though I may try to seek to be understanding of the African American experience and, and read a lot about that, and I have read a lot about that. Um, that doesn't mean that I can understand what it's like to be an African American in, 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 in the southeast of the United States, because it's not my experience. And so the notion is not that we're just completely sucked in by subjectivity and all sorts of complete rel- relativistic claims, but that instead we try to elucidate what our presuppositions might be. We try to make sense of what our lenses might be. And in the task of trying to pay attention to our lenses, we might be able to see things that we couldn't see otherwise. So uh, today I, w- I want to, uh, I- I've talked the last two weeks about how my understanding of grace took kind of a twofold, twofold step, or two steps, two significant steps, and that uh, the first step was in reaction to or response to a moralistic or legalistic constructs that I received as a child, uh, I began to have this very strong word of, no, I'm saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. um, It's not something through which we can ever attain of our own capacities. It's not something that we earn. But the New Testament and the Old Testament, by the way, if you're not aware of this, the Old Testament is very strong in affirming that it's all by God's grace. And for some of you, that may be a surprise, but Deuteronomy, for example, is one of the places where this just gets hit hard, very, very hard. And also, the Old Testament is also very keen on paying attention to is not just about external works, but it's about your heart. And again, that may surprise you some, that the Old Testament cares about the heart, but is very concerned about the heart, Uh, not just external acts of observance or external acts of some sort of self-righteousness. So that first step then was just kind of coming to to terms with them. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And then, uh, last week, I talked about the ways in which um, I began to see how desperately we need and how, how desperately Paul, the Apostle Paul understood that we need grace to be construed not just as a legalistic category, that um, one can be very emphatic about being saved by grace through faith while still caring about a deeply legalistic conception of what grace is. Does that make sense at all? Um, because if your your primary construct is, we broke God's rules, and God can make whatever rules God wants, and God just makes these rules up and says, you better keep these rules, and if you don't keep these rules, then you're going to go to hell. And then God steps in through Christ and says, well, I forgive you. Well, even if God says, I forgive you, uh, the construct, the legalistic construct may still be there. And so last week we began to challenge this notion that Maybe grace is something more than that. Maybe grace is this power of God because we find ourselves in the situation that Paul does in Romans 7 in which he says, I do the very things I don't want to do. I know what's good and I know what's bad. And he says our fundamental problem is not that God is standing over us as a judge saying you broke my rules, damn you. Now that was a perfectly good use of damn, right? (laughs) It's not that God stands over us cursing us It's that instead, we find ourselves in this situation in which we know what's good and we know what's bad. And we do the bad that we don't want to do. And then he closes out chapter 7 by saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he opens chapter 8 up. Thanks be to God, right, to the work of Christ. And this beautiful chapter in Romans chapter 8, where he says that new, new possibilities are there. New possibilities can come about through God's grace and through God's work in the world. Well, Today I want to take an additional sort of step. I don't know when I first started paying attention to this, but um, the certainly the I, I told you all about the, the night of my baptism, in which uh, it was an interesting experience, uh, the the preaching about Satan and so forth, and the guy who died on the way to the to the church building to get baptized and so forth. Um, but the, the end of that story, the end of any of those kinds of stories is either heaven or hell, right? That's the end of the story. And at some point, I began to pay attention through good teachers that actually that's not what the Bible says is the end of the story at all. In other words, um, if you go back and you look at, ch- say, let's say for example, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, it tells of Jesus going out and beginning to proclaim the gospel. And so Matthew, I think it's verse 17, Matthew gives us this very nice, succinct summary of Jesus preaching the gospel. He calls it the gospel there. He goes out preaching the good news saying, you might know what he says in Matthew 4, the two things he says. Repent for kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is here. Uh, Matthew likes kingdom of heaven. Um, so, so what Jesus... Is, it's interesting if you think, for example, that, that, that he does not go out and say, Behold, your personal Savior is here, and if you believe in me, you can go to heaven when you die. You know, a lot of people like to excuse the Sermon on the Mount and say, Jesus is just teaching a personal ethic in the Sermon on the Mount... But Jesus doesn't ever say this is about a personal ethic between you and other people and you do another ethic when you're out in the world. He says this is what it looks like if the kingdom of God comes, when the kingdom of heaven comes. Well then, the one I think that really began to blow my mind was that um, where is the street of gold? This is a trick question. But where is the street of gold? We know this in all of our jokes. Where is the street of gold? It's in heaven, right? So one day I actually read Revelation 21 and 22, and I realized the street of gold is not in heaven. The street of gold is in the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and it says, where God is at home in our midst. And he picks up the language from Isaiah 65 about new heavens and new earth, about God wiping away every tear from every eye, and all things being made right. The end of the story is not that we go to heaven. The end of the story is that all things get set right, and the manner in which death and animosity and hostility mars God's good creation is finally overcome in new heavens and new earth, and all of the pain and all of the anguish and all of the war and all of the hostility is finally overcome by God's redemptive work, and God will wipe every tear from every eye. And it has this glorious passage. And which he says there's a stream that makes glad the city of God, that flows from the throne of God, and the way he kind of describes it there, it's like as the river comes out from the throne of God, it's like he, he, he's got a whole avenue of the tree of life alongside the river that comes from the throne of God. Piling up all sorts of beautiful imagery to say, this is that for which we wait, which all things will be made right. So this was kind of confusing to me, you know, because I'd always assumed, well, the end of the story is to go to heaven when we die. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, wait a second. That doesn't seem to be what the Bible is saying. Well, we've always assumed it's what the Bible says. But it doesn't seem to be what the Bible is saying. Well, what I want to do today is I want to give you um, three different ways to think about... uh, eschatology. Now, eschatology is a fancy technical word. The Greek word eschaton just means the end of things. Where is it where are things headed at the end? Um, and as we'll see, I want to encourage you not to think about end in terms of a terminus of time, but a goal. Where are things headed? And I want to give you three different. I'm going to paint with very broad strokes, but broad strokes that I think are true give you three different eschatological visions to try to understand what our faith is about. Okay? Here's the first one. Number one, common Hellenistic worldview. By Hellenistic, we mean Greek, Greek thought. So one of the things that happens in um, the early church is that some of the early church fathers began to see the ways in which Greek thought is being brought into Christian theology. And they start grappling with it and fighting with it, as we'll see. I'll give you a, a classic quote about that here in just a minute. But typically you have this kind of dualism. And the dualism is between this life and the afterlife. And then you have this, uh, this notion that this life, characterized by life in the body, materiality, inside time and history. I've got uh, bad there. Um, however, um, some people see life in the body as either bad or indifferent. All right, so, for example there were, uh, those those who saw life in the body as bad uh, might be typified in some of the ascetics. And the ascetics are people that you're not going to have fun going to a party with, right? They're the ones that everything should be treated with disdain. They wouldn't, some of the ascetics would not uh, uh, do the kind of common ways of doing personal hygiene uh, and and so because you don't want to be kind to the body in any any particular way. So ascetics are always very disdainful, distrustful of anything related to the body. Then there are others called the libertines. And the libertines are like, look, it doesn't matter what you do in the body. What matters is the spirit. And so, look, man, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, enjoy the stuff, right? And so it doesn't matter. So just do what what you would choose. But in any case, uh, you got the body sharply separated then from the spirit. And then death is that line at which this life is separated from the afterlife. In the afterlife, characterized by life freed from a body, which you seem to, this is the good stuff that we finally get outside time and history. One of the uh, one of the early Gnostic thinkers has this line where he says that death kindly frees uh, the spirit from the prison house of the body. Now listen, listen to that phrase again: that death <coughs> kindly frees the spirit or the soul from the prison house of the body. So the idea there is that, right, we, we're in this, this, this rough stuff, and the sweet by and by comes, and we go off into the afterlife in the spirit. Like Romans 7, you know, it almost sounds like describing the frustration of the flesh in, in Romans 7. Um, yes. So you could certainly read Romans 7 through that lens and say, you know, when, when, I, when can I finally be freed from this body? And get to the stuff where I'm not tempted and tested by the appetites of the body. Now, note here that uh, this sort of metaphor, this sort of way of thinking about things is, is spatial. It's a sort of, we're down here and then we get to go up there. Um, I'll fly away is, is a classic uh, hymn describing this approach. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away, oh glory, right? To a home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. I like to tell people that that, that uh, you know I'll fly away is a sort of early Gnostic heresy about the gospel uh, because it's describing this sort of way of thinking about what the world is up to. But look at this quote from um, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was uh, killed for his faith, so somebody pretty serious about his faith. And he says, "There are some who are called Christians who say that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven. They are godless, impious heretics." <laughs> This is second century. And then we might step back and ask ourselves the question, well, wait, isn't that what we talk about all the time at funerals? And we might say, well, maybe we do, and maybe we have a problem with the way we're talking about this stuff. Now, one of the things that you should always do is when somebody has that many ellipses, um, (laughs) you should always be highly suspicious. Um, So I'm going to at least fill in some of these for you. Uh, Here's a fuller quote. There are some who are called Christians who say that there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven. They are godless and pious heretics. I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points, (laughs) we are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead. See, this was when I started wondering about this stuff. I remember that I was sitting in a class, uh, this was Harvey Floyd at, at Lipscomb, as an undergrad, and he did, uh, as I recollect, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which is the great resurrection chapter, and, and Harvey begins describing that stuff, and he makes it clear that this is about a bodily resurrection. The claim about the gospel is that what we anticipate and wait for is a bodily resurrection. And of course, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, it'll be changed, it'll be transformed, but we're waiting for a bodily resurrection. And that was another one of those moments where I said, "I, I don't think I knew that. That is, I had presumed that resurrection was a sort of shorthand. The resurrection for which we wait was a sort of shorthand that our spirits would go off to heaven. And here, the Apostle Paul and Justin Martyr are claiming that the end of the story where this is headed is resurrection. Not spirits separated from the body going off to a heavenly reward. Now, let me give you a a second sort of... So if our first model is kind of common Hellenistic thought, dualism, this life, afterlife, and so forth, let's look at a second possibility. (coughs) Here we have kind of common Jewish apocalyptic. So this would be uh, common among a number of Jewish thinkers between uh, the so-called intertestamental era. Um, and I'm, I've got to, again, sorry for the, for the Greek word, but I want to use the Greek word because um, if we use the translation of it, it might confuse the matter. Aeon is typically translated either age or world, this age, this world, the coming age, the coming world, uh, but we'll talk about that in a bit. But if you look at some of the intertestamental Jewish apocalyptic literature, before I go into that, let me, let me define this word. Apocalyptic um uh, the last book in the New Testament is called John's Apocalypsis, John's Revelation, John's Revelation. And so what happens typically in a apocalyptic literature is a revealing of some drastic, dramatic moment and turn in history in which God's will is going to be revealed, and all of a sudden, things are going to be made right. And so when we talk about common Jewish apocalyptic, they're waiting on some turning point some majestic dramatic all encompassing turning point in history between that will separate clearly this aeon and the coming aeon this aeon as i've got noted here is kind of characterized by rebellion that that, that any good any good jew who's schooled in in the hebrew scriptures is always going to know that god's will is not arbitrary and capricious but instead, God's will is grounded in the nature of how things are and what is good. And that's when we rebel against God, we're rebelling against life. When we're rebelling against God's will, we're rebelling about, against what's good for us. And so rebellion, and I'm going to look at some text here in just a minute. This rebellion then leads to things like injustice. It leads to things like oppression. It leads to things like warfare. It leads to things like lust and all the various social manifestations of lust and greed and, and the like. And then the coming aeon would be characterized by obedience, that people then, rather than rebelling against God, they're they're going to want to know, well, what is God's will? And consequently, all of the turns will occur. Then there'll be justice. Then there'll be righteousness. Then there'll be peace. Then there'll be contentment. And all will be well. Now, let's look at, uh, think about this just a little bit more. Uh, There's this expectation that there will be some sort of coming, some sort of appearance, some sort of day of the Lord that's going to be the turning point at which this happens. There's a variety of expectations about what this might look like, a variety of expectations about how this might entail Israel or some Messianic figure in Israel and so forth. But it's got this expectation that there will come this sort of true moment in history in which will turn from one over to the other. Let's look at a few texts here. This one is taken from Isaiah 2. Uh, Which is also in Micah 4. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. So, what we have here, right here in, in this from Isaiah 2, is this basic change in disposition. There's coming a day in which people are going to want to say, Okay, teach us. Okay, tell us. Okay, instruct us in your ways, O God. Now watch what happens in the following verses about what will come from that. Out of Zion shall go forth instruction, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So what the prophet is doing here, a lot of people will say that the Old Testament is all, all about you know, holy war. But in fact, what you have in the prophets here is a sort of longing for peace that's a radical sort of longing for peace. And they're saying this is where things are headed. When we want to know the will of God and we practice the will of God, then all of the brokenness and hostility and animosity and warring one against the other will be undone. Now, there's a there's a variety. I'm not I'm not going to spend much time on this, but um, move by it really quickly. But there's a variety of ways you can think about this sort of construct as he- being a helpful way to inform our reading of of the Old Testament. Uh, you have the Jews going to exile, and then they await a coming of a restoration of Israel or remission of sins or pouring out of God's Spirit. It's important, I think, for you to note that when. We hear the the word, the phrase, remission of sins, we tend to think in very individualistic terms. The remission of my sins. But Israel would have often heard this phrase much more socially and communally. Because they go into exile, because as, as Jeremiah would say, because they're being punished by God for their failings to keep the covenant of God. And so when they come back into their homeland, and they're continuing to suffer injustice and oppression, They cry out and ask, when when will our sins be remitted? When will you forgive us, O God? Um, And there's lots of fascinating history that's going on around all of this, uh, but but it would have been this longing for God's will to be done and forgive them of their sins. Or you could think about kind of the turn from death to life and resurrection. (coughs) In any case, note that what's going on here is that rather than a kind of metaphor of space, you're thinking about history. The concern is God's will being done in history. The concern is for God's will to be done on the sort of stage of human history and that God's at work and God's going to make things right somehow or the other. Now, let me go to... uh, We'll go to this one here just a second go. This is an old um, Quaker early American uh, folk Quaker artist um, in which you have the lamb lying down with the lion with the ox and so forth. the child the little child shall lead them. And one of the one of the, what you see back here in the background is uh, some of the Quakers in conversation with the indigenous population, with the Native Americans. The Quakers um, were unusual in that they insisted that when we come to this new land, that um, we're the new ones here, and we are to treat those who are already here as our friends. For a Quaker to call you a friend is a way for a Quaker to say, I see the light of God in you, and you see the light of God in me, and we have this sort of common creation, common kinship through the grace and work of God. But this sort of picture, then, of playing out the prophetic vision of one being played out, uh, this picture of the prophetic vision being played out had very concrete, tangible, ethical implications for them. And we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. Now, here's a, uh, so our first vision, kind of common Hellenistic, common Greek, Second, Jewish apocalyptic. So the common Hellenistic thought is about space up there outside of time and history. The common Jewish apocalyptic is about history. God's doing something in history. Now, it's common for us Christians when we read the New Testament, read the Gospels, for us to say things like, well, the Jews got it wrong. They misunderstood what was going to happen. Anybody ever hear people say this? So if if these are our two options then what do we assume is the right answer? The the, the Greek thought, right? Greek thought about spirit and not being concerned with the body, not being concerned with time, not being concerned with history. It's getting out of this, right? But instead, let me suggest, check my little animation here, that um, Paul's sort of vision is more something like this. That is, for the Apostle Paul, who's a good Jew, Paul doesn't transform his thinking to become a Greek philosopher. Instead, what Paul does is he says, well, we know the Scriptures, and we know what the Scriptures say, and we know the Scriptures say that God is going to make things right. We know that the whole creation is groaning, waiting, longing for the redemptive work of God. Where is that from? Romans 8, right? We know the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of God. So what are we to do with the notion that the Messiah has come? So he he has this Damascus Road experience, and he he can't get around the notion that Jesus is Messiah anymore. What then are we to do with the fact that some still die? What are we to do with the fact that war is still being practiced? What are we to do with the fact that that there are still markers of the brokenness of human history still at play if if the Messiah has come, which is a really good question, I think, right? And so for Paul, it begins to look something like this. Of course, he doesn't have this chart. I I think it would have helped the whole history of Christianity if he had had this chart. But he has this notion of the Christ event, and the Christ event inaugurates the start of the new aeon. And yet we're still waiting for the coming, or the day of the Lord, what we call the second coming, in which finally death will be consummately defeated. So if you go back again to 1 Corinthians 15, right, he says that we're waiting on the general resurrection in which death, which is the final enemy of God, will finally be defeated, right? And so for him, the, the resurrection of Christ has ushered in this new even though the old is still hanging around, let me give you a, a metaphor that um, I've taken from uh, a German New Testament scholar named Oscar Kuhlmann. Kuhlmann was uh, writing; I think he's writing this in the 1950s, uh, so the decade following World War II. And he uses—I think this is a very helpful sort of metaphor. He says that the coming of Christ is something like D-Day. And that for which we wait is something like V-Day. So in other words, D-Day, you know that triumphant moment, dramatic moment of getting the troops on the beach at Normandy. And all the Allies know that if we get the troops onto the beach in Normandy, the war is over. If we are able to be successful in this intrusion and push to get on the beaches, the war is over. Now, the war was not over for a number of months, and a lot of people died between D-Day and V-Day. A lot of battles got fought between D-Day and V-Day. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed in in, uh, his prison camp between D-Day and V-Day. There's all sorts of stuff that happens between D-Day and V-Day. And it's like, even most apparently, most of the Nazi generals knew the war was over after D-Day. Hitler, apparently, still lived in a sort of state of delusion, but most people knew it's over, it's over. But it wasn't over until V Day. And so, what Kuhlmann suggested, he said, "This is a this is a metaphor through which we can understand what the New Testament has proclaimed: that the rebellion and all that it represents its injustice, its oppression, its violence, its warring, its lusting, its." greed and grasping that all of this which takes on a sort of power in human history that it has been defeated in the incarnation in the ministry in the death the burial the resurrection of Christ that the new has been inaugurated in Christ and we now wait for the consummation of this and there will be all sorts of struggles between the inauguration and the consummation People will continue to die, people will continue to struggle, but we wait for the consummation of the kingdom of God. Well, let's think a little bit about this. Um, One one thing to to note that's interesting is that if you you pay attention to Paul, or you pay attention to Pauline texts, um, you'll see that he speaks in sort of what might appear to be inconsistent terms that sometimes he'll speak in terms of it's happened already, and other times he'll talk in terms of we're waiting on it to happen. Let me give you a few quick examples. Galatians 1, we've even now been redeemed from this present evil aeon. Already we've got it, he says in Galatians. Romans 8, yet we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Or, I don't have time to talk about that. Or the now part. God has rescued us from the power of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins already. Or then from 1 Corinthians 15, the not yet part. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. It's all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There it is, not yet, off in the future. So then Paul has this notion that all of these things, resurrection, spirit, victory, we've gotten down payments of it, a first installment of it, but we haven't got it yet. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what we shall see, what we shall experience, what we shall know in the consummation of all of this. Now, Romans 12 is kind of the key turn on all this for Christian ethics. In Romans 12, Paul will say, after having talked about the gospel and the work of the gospel in the world, he'll say, therefore do not be conformed to this aeon. Now, it's translating a lot of your uh, versions as don't be conformed to this world, right? So if you're reading the Bible with a Hellenistic sort of lens, And you read Romans 12, you're right. oh, that's right. Things about the body don't matter. Things about history don't matter. Things about politics don't matter. Things about the creation and sustainability don't matter. Let's don't think about bodily things. Let's just think about spiritual things. On the other hand, you're reading it through Pauline Apocalyptic, and you realize that what he's just said is, therefore, don't be conformed to this aeon, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is the rightful worship God has called you to. Now, all of a sudden, our bodies... History, politics, society, creation—all makes loads of difference. All of a sudden. Let me um, let me close with. Um, I'll skip him too, <laughs> but but this one, this one uh, that some of you I know have heard me tell. Um, one day I was in um, the locker room years ago, and. Um, I was exhausted from working out, and I was sitting on the bench after my shower. And one of my colleagues, who was a biology professor, came into the shower. So we were talking, and so he went and got his shower. And um, so we were still kind of shouting through the locker room, talking to each other. And uh, after his shower, he reaches around the corner. So he's like, you know, the shower's like here. So he reaches around the corner. There's a paper towel dispenser, and so he reaches around and pumps him off some paper towels and tears off one and he folds it up sets it on the floor and then he folds up a second one sets it on the floor and then he steps out of the shower onto those paper towels and then he like <laughs> <laughs> and, and he sees me looking at him you know, like, and he like and he says oh I forgot my football And I'm like, no, duh. (laughs) But then it occurs to me, right, I'm not the dumb one. I mean, he's not the dumb one. I'm the dumb one. Because he's a biologist. He knows what's on these floors. (laughs) This is the key to Christian ethics. What Christian ethics claims is that the new aeon has come. And the triumph of life over death, the triumph of justice over injustice, The triumph of oppression, the triumph of of all things being made right over oppression has come in Christ, and we see things that others do not see, that will make us act in odd ways from everybody else's perspective. But if indeed what the gospel proclaims is true, then that alone is something by which to live and to order our lives as we live. That makes sense? Mm Do quick two minutes questions comments. It seems to me that part of the why the Hellenistic view is so hard to let go of, or why it's so attractive, is that we there is something about even in your third graphic that is unknown and that is outside of our reality now. (coughs) It's out in a way; it is outside of space and time. And how a decayed corpse can be resurrected or cremated or, you know, these atoms or whatever. We don't know what that looks like. Right. So I'm not giving a call back to the Hellenistic. I just am acknowledging the fact that there is something that is so mysterious and outside of our human realities that... Yeah, and in my mind, I mean, this is the crux of where it becomes a test of whether or not we really stake our lives on this, right? Because this, and I like to tell my students, I think, I think you'll understand Christianity better if you don't think of it as a religion and you think of it as an interpretation of history. And this interpretation of history has all sorts of profound implications for how you live your life. Um, and so it's like, if this is true, we can see why all of a sudden this changes everything, right? And it does require to live by faith. Um, and it's a sort of daunting task to live according to these sorts of claims in the world. So, yeah, I, yeah in no way do I think that this makes it easier. In, in some ways, it may make it much harder for us to come face to face. I, I do think sometimes if we don't every now and then look at Christian faith and say, this is crazy, yeah. then I, I suspect we haven't understood it. Somebody else, ask William. Doesn't that make most of the stuff we do as Christians, though, like paddling ridiculous? Like, a lot of the things that we worry about, like, um, I uh, I mean, just a lot of this stuff, especially as uh, Church of Christ folks, a lot of this stuff, it, it has no historical implication for the long haul, especially for the coming era at all. Yeah, it definitely challenges a lot of that kind of stuff, I think, for sure. But the, all of a sudden it completely reorients the way we think about the, uh, think about things, right? If, if what we are to do is to be agents and witnesses of the world that is to come, then that has a profound, deep implication for our lives. Um, if we are to be agents of the, the new heavens and the new earth, then it has all sorts of possibilities for doing good work in the world as well. And then you can all of a sudden begin to see why things like working on sustainability, or working on matters of justice and peace, um, working on matters of human trafficking. All of a sudden, these are like, oh, well, this is at the heart of what it means to be a believer in Christ, because we are working in a, way, in a way to sow the seeds of the coming kingdom. And this is what it means and what it looks like. Right. So, rather than being caught up on kind of trivial things, these are big, big things. Great. One more. How and when did the idea of dying and going to heaven gain uh, such a broad understanding? There were struggles with it as early as like the second century, um, and it kind of, even though the early church uh, fathers um, pushed back very hard against it, it's been kind of an ongoing kind of struggle through Christian history. All right, my friends, y'all have a great week. See you next week.